This is exactly right. I am a public defender. I practice in a small area of a state that is not one of the epicenters for the coronavirus. There are parts of my state that have been hit hard, and there have been cases in and around my area. A great deal of my time and energy has been devoted to my currently incarcerated clients. Often, when I see articles on social media about coronavirus in jails and prisons, there are a lot of comments along the lines of, well, it's their own fault for being there. This frustrates me a lot. First, not everyone who is locked up has been convicted of something. Many of my clients are locked up because they could not make bail. Also, minor crimes should not carry a death sentence. When courts went to restricted schedules in mid-March, my office started filing motions for bond for clients whose cases had been continued. One of my colleagues contacted the local jail to find out information on male inmates' abilities to social distance and maintain hygiene. Female inmates are housed elsewhere, and we did not receive information on their situation. We found out, one, showers and toilets are shared with one shower for 16 to 17 inmates. Two, clothing is washed twice per week, linens are washed once per week, and blankets are washed monthly. Three, two or three inmates sleep on the floor of a pod designed for 14. Four, there is no access to hand sanitizer. Five, there are limited supplies of soap, toilet paper, and tissues. And six, there is not enough physical space to allow inmates to maintain three-foot separation, as was the recommendation at the time. The judge hearing our motions was, and at the time of writing this still is, of the opinion that inmates are safer in jail than out on the streets. Of the approximately 20 bond hearings we did the first day, two or three were granted. For our next round of bond motions, my colleague went to court with an article from a national newspaper and a PowerPoint presentation, both written by an epidemiologist who studies disease in jails and prisons, as evidence that one case in a jail or prison would spread like wildfire throughout the inmates and correction staff. But since there wasn't a peer-reviewed study and the epidemiologist was not physically in court to present her research, the judge would not let my colleague admit the article or PowerPoint. The lack of scientific consensus is a roadblock we keep running into. News reports say studies show various underlying conditions cause greater risk, but we have no way to present that evidence as evidence, so the judge does not consider it when making determinations. We have tried to proffer what we have read in news reports, but the prosecutor objects and the court does not accept our attempts. In all, the jail population has been reduced about 15%, which is not bad. But it does not fix the hygiene issues or the fact that inmates cannot physically maintain the now-recommended six-foot distance. I do not know how many inmates are immunocompromised, nor how many have other health issues which would put them at greater risk if they were infected. I do know there are inmates in those situations. I represent some of them. I do not know what measures the jail is taking to screen inmates who may be showing symptoms. The local hospital is small and already has coronavirus patients. I get multiple calls a day from incarcerated clients, asking if they can have a bond hearing or a furlough motion. Some I can file, most are not eligible. Many of my clients have read in the paper about inmates in other jails getting out, which is true. But my clients are not in those other jails. They are where they are, with judges who still believe they are safer locked up.
A few jails in my state have now had outbreaks. So far, we have not had a positive case in our jail, but I believe it is only a matter of time. I am a daughter to two Mexican parents who migrated to the U.S. when they were very young. Before the pandemic began, I was working in the ophthalmology department at a large network of clinics in the California Central Coast. My life was pretty ordinary. I got to work at about 7.30 a.m., got a coffee at the cafe across the way, worked eight to nine hours, then headed home. On the weekends, I did a lot of hiking with friends, walking downtown, or going to cafes to read or hang out. Just before the start of the pandemic, I had accepted the admission offer into the PhD program, began making plans to move, and in the process of starting a research position at the institution in May. Unfortunately, all of those plans have been put on hold due to COVID-19. I am passionate about public health and had been volunteering at my county's public health department, so I heard about the novel coronavirus shortly after the first incident was reported to the WHO. I began to worry about my parents when I saw that patients who seemed to be impacted most severely and also dying were older people with underlying conditions. My mom is a breast cancer survivor and also has an underlying heart condition, and my dad just recently fell sick from pesticide exposure. I am constantly telling my parents to be careful, wash their hands, etc., but it's difficult when you can't be there and they're struggling, both financially and health-wise. Add on their undocumented status, and it really amplifies the fear. When you're undocumented, moving through society undetected feels like the key to survival, and a lot of times, seeking professional medical attention feels like a risk too big to take. At the start of the pandemic, I felt hopeful because I trust our leaders in scientific research spaces, as well as our medical and healthcare staff. But I quickly came to realize how much impact the administrative and political side of things has on science's ability to save lives. Aside from my worry stemming from the lack of leadership coming from people in positions of power, I was also just really stressing out about the fact that most people I knew or was connected to via social media had no idea how to get reliable information. Another big stressor is money, but I think there are a lot of people stressing out about that right now. Like a lot of people, I don't have an income now, but I still have rent and bills to pay. I also regularly help my parents financially, but I can't do that now either. I think the message that I want to drive home the hardest is, number one, there are populations in the country who have been victims of exploitation, who have dedicated their lives to becoming true Americans, who have selflessly given their labor and their bodies to prove that they can be and are productive members of this national community who will unfortunately not be granted access to aid during this pandemic. And these are decisions that have been purposely made by the people who have been elected to lead. Not only is this a humanitarian crisis in our country, but it also costs a lot more money to disenfranchise communities and limit their access to health care than to grant them the tools and services they need to stay healthy. Number two, there are a lot of healthcare providers and staff who are putting their lives on the line for our communities, and they are also probably experiencing some level of oppression. They really need the support of their community. They need to feel that their community is behind them, backing them up when they are expressing concerns regarding their safety and working conditions. It is pretty obvious now that the fight against this pandemic will have to be led by the people on the ground who hold no administrative power, but care enough about preserving human life to take on the fight. 
but those of us who will be stepping up to make homemade masks, organize donation drives, and offer free meals and services must remember to make an intentional effort to consider and include the most marginalized folks in our communities. Those were excellent firsthand accounts. Thank you so much for writing in. Yes, yes. So those are two firsthand accounts that people sent to us when we were asking people to fill out the form. And we really, really appreciate you taking the time to write that out and, and share your story with us. I think it's very interesting and important to hear all these different perspectives. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Also so well-written. So well-written. I know. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Allman Updike. Welcome to another episode, the eighth episode in our series on COVID-19, which we're calling Anatomy of a Pandemic. This week, we're talking about the disproportionate impact this pandemic is likely to have on populations that are already vulnerable and what we're currently doing to try to minimize that impact. But before we get into that, we have a few pieces of business to get into. First off, firsthand accounts, which you just heard two of. We're going to keep doing these episodes, and that means we're going to need more firsthand accounts from you. If you're willing to share how this pandemic has impacted you and you're okay with us featuring your story as a firsthand account on upcoming episodes, we're asking for you to go to thispodcastwillkillyou.com and click on COVID-19 firsthand to fill out the form there, and we can get back to you. Second, alcohol-free episodes. On our website, we have made a special playlist that has our episodes with the quarantini talk edited out. We're providing these for anyone who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to hear us talking about alcohol. Don't worry, our normal episodes will still have quarantinis, and you'd actually have to go out of your way to listen to the alcohol-free ones. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly business-wise. If you've listened before, you probably know that we have a Goodreads list, which Erin Welsh pretty much curates. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not big it's on, also the, on the Goodreads user list. user contributions. That's true. It's a great list. It's a really good list. But now we also have an affiliate page on bookshop.org, which is an amazing online bookstore that works with independent bookstores to support them financially. So you can find that link on our website along with links to books on bookshop.org in our reference section for each episode. Uh, yeah, we really love the idea of bookshop.org and a listener, the listener who sent that to us. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. So on bookshop, we have a few different lists. So I'm thinking now maybe to separate them into nonfiction, fiction and memoirs. Um, but in any case, you can find all of the books that we have read in our episodes there. And then we'll also throw in some more that we have read and liked or that other listeners have recommended. 
Um, And then I also want to just give a little friendly reminder that (laughs) even though public libraries are closed, if you have a library card and an appropriate device, you can still check out ebooks, you can still check out audiobooks, you can still check out magazines. And uh, there are also a ton of other amazing resources on libraries online. So you should check out your local library website. Awesome. All right. Well, is it, uh, what time is it, Erin? I believe it's quarantini time. I believe you are right. <laughs> Checking my watch now. Here we go. So, quarantini eight. Quarantini number eight. Quarantini eight has bourbon, apple brandy, grenadine, and lemon juice. Yum. It's pretty good. That sounds good. I don't have those ingredients, so I, I haven't tried that one yet, but sounds tasty. It's it's not bad. I can <laughs> I can vouch for its decentness. Decentness. <laughs> Just what everyone wants in a no, no, quarantine. It's, it's better than decent. I think it's tasty. <laughs> but you know, people have different tastes. So anyway. It's so true. So true. Yeah. Okay. All right. So moving right. on. So We got some emails from listeners asking us to clear up a few things about COVID-19 from our previous episodes, so we're going to do that real quick before we dive into the interview. The first is about herd immunity. So in one of our COVID-19 episodes, we said something like, herd immunity as a strategy is a terrible strategy, which in retrospect may have been a bit confusing because we usually talk about the importance of maintaining herd immunity in preventing outbreaks. So... Why would herd immunity be a bad strategy? Well, first, let's just go over the definition of herd immunity. Herd immunity is simply that if there's a large proportion of people who are immune to a particular pathogen, outbreaks of that pathogen are less likely to happen because the chain of transmission can't be maintained. It's the way that we achieve herd immunity that makes it a good or bad strategy. So you can achieve herd immunity by either vaccinating people or through actual infection with a pathogen. Right now, we don't have a vaccine for the virus that causes COVID-19. So the only way to achieve herd immunity for that would be through having everyone get infected. But if we were to do that, an unbelievable number of people would become severely ill or die. Our hospitals would be overburdened even more than they currently are. And so that is why herd immunity for COVID-19 at this point is a bad strategy. It's sort of just the way you get herd immunity. Does that make sense? Yes. Excellent explanation, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. The second thing that people have written in about is about the R-naught and this idea that we've talked about of bringing down the R-naught of SARS-CoV-2. So usually on this podcast, when we talk about the R-naught of a pathogen, we describe it as kind of an unchanging, inherent characteristic of that pathogen. For example, we've said that the R-naught of measles is between 12 or 18, or the R-naught of smallpox is between three and a half and six. So when we talk about bringing it down, bringing the R-naught down, how can we even do that? How is that a thing? It has to do with how the R-naught is calculated. These numbers, and again, the R-naught is the reproductive value of a pathogen, these numbers are estimates that are based off of a particular kind of idealized scenario in which one single infected person 
goes into a community of fully susceptible individuals where no one else that they're around has immunity to that pathogen. The number of people infected from that one person in that community would be the R0 value. That would be the basic R0. The effective R0 depends on how many people in that community are immune or on how much people change their behavior to actually decrease their exposure. So both of these numbers are context dependent. The basic R0 of measles is 12 to 18, but the effective R0 in a community that has high rates of protection against measles, for example, high rates of vaccination, is much, much lower because there aren't enough susceptible people in that community to actually sustain that chain of transmission. So in the absence of an effective vaccine, such as we're living right now with COVID-19, we can still drive down the r naught by breaking the chain of transmission through changes in our behavior. Which brings us to a very important discussion in this interview today. Yes, if you have listened to the podcast before, you know that our sign-off is wash your hands, you filthy animals. And throughout this pandemic, hand washing has been hammered over and over again as a good way to reduce your chances of getting infected with the virus and passing it along to others. And it is a really good way to prevent that from happening. But what if you don't have clean water or soap? What if you're not able to shelter in place because you're fleeing from a war? Or what if you can't practice social or physical distancing because you live in a slum or refugee camp? These are the questions that Dr. Jonathan Whittall, who is the Director of Analysis at Médecins Sans Frontières, a.k.a. MSF, a.k.a. Doctors Without Borders, brought up in his amazing article titled, Vulnerable Communities Are Bracing for Impact of COVID-19. We brought him onto the podcast to talk about how this pandemic is likely to impact populations that are already vulnerable or whose health and safety is constantly under threat, and to discuss what we can learn from working in past public health crises with limited resources. You'll hear from him right after this break. My name is uh, Jonathan Whittle. I'm the director of the analysis department for Doctors Without Borders. Um, so I work on global issues related to forced migration, uh, conflict and humanitarianism, um, health policy issues. Um, we have a team of, of people that are, are digging into each of these broad thematics to, to try and help our projects and our, our teams that are working in the field understand the environment that they're trying to navigate. At the moment, I'm, I'm talking to you from, from Beirut in, in the Middle East. And what I'm working on at the moment is 190% COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what kind of projects are you working on there or what specifically are you doing in Beirut? 
So what we're what we're doing? Well, I'll, I'll talk more broadly than than uh, than on Lebanon. But what we're doing on on COVID nineteen? So Doctors Without Borders, just for your, for your listeners to have a bit of background. I'm sure many of them know know what we do. But we're an emergency medical organization. So um, our goals are saving lives, alleviating suffering, responding to to emergencies. We work in seventy countries around the world. Um, we respond to epidemics, so this is uh, this is not something new for us in the sense that it's uh, it's a it's we do work on epidemic uh, response, um, but we also respond to neglect, uh, people that are excluded from access to healthcare, um, and the, the the impact of conflicts, disasters, uh, etc. Um, so with COVID, we've been we've been responding since the beginning uh, when it started in in uh, in China. Um, and the epicenter, as you know, has now shifted to uh, to to Europe and, and and North America. And what's what's interesting is that for the first time in MSF's history, we are conducting a major medical emergency response in Europe. Um, so the crisis, the, the 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 emergency, has overwhelmed the health system in Europe, um, and there was a need for MSF to to uh, to respond to this emergency. So we're now working in, in Italy, Spain, Belgium, France, a few other countries um, in, in Europe. And this kind of epidemic requires, it, it requires work on multiple different levels, from community levels right up to hospital care and, and very sophisticated hospital care. But what we've seen in Europe is that it's, it's a, the health system is a very individually based um, model. So it fo- focuses very much on the individual and it's very hospital focused. So, for example, if you have cancer, you would want to be in, in Europe to, to receive treatment. If you're facing a pandemic, um, it's something that Europe hasn't dealt with for, for 100 years. But at the same time, Europe is not going to stay, the, and North America is not going to stay the center of this epidemic for, for long. And we're extremely worried about about what's going to come next, um, where we start to to see the the, the virus entering into lower resourced countries, um, where the, the kind of next wave of this pandemic will will hit, and then we will face different dilemmas and, and difficulties, more linked to the already weak uh, weak or an overstretched health system. So. Yeah, grappling with with all of these issues from from our emergency response as it stands today to preparing for when the next wave hits are are what we're really focused on at the moment. Gotcha. Yeah. So the COVID-19 pandemic for so many people is unprecedented, but there are also many other populations that have experienced these devastating outbreaks or epidemics or other just more continuous threats to their health and safety, as you mentioned. And can you talk about what you're seeing in terms of the differences between this COVID-19 pandemic and other public health emergency situations, such as cholera outbreaks in refugee camps, for example, or Ebola epidemics? Yeah. um, So the biggest difference is scale. Um, This is happening everywhere at once. Um, So I think every health organization, every ministry of health uh, is going to be pushed to its limits and beyond. And what we're going to need is a kind of global global solidarity. And I think with with COVID-19, the, the outcomes for the severely ill is extremely concerning for us, which is which is why it's so important to break the train of chain of uh, of uh, of transmission and to lower the number of, of critically ill. So in this sense, 
the community component is, is quite similar to what we see in other epidemics. We can't wait for patients to reach the hospital to tackle the, the pandemic. We need to work at, at a community level. It's a, it's a critical part of the overall response. And that's very similar to the kind of work that we do in, for example, in, in Ebola. The problem with, with COVID-19 is that the measures that people need to take to protect themselves are, are, are hard or, or even impossible in, in some places, distance from taking distance, social distance, uh, isolating the elderly, the medically vulnerable, um, hand washing. So, and, and the disease is also transmitting when people are, are mildly sick or, or even not symptomatic at all, um, which makes the, the management of, of tracing um, contacts. So if, if one person that is sick has contact with another person, we call it contact tracing and we try to, to follow the potential spread of the disease. This is very difficult in, in, in COVID, uh, in COVID-19. So usually in a, in a epidemic situation for Doctors Without Borders, if it was happening in one specific location, we would deploy the full scale of our emergency response and supplies and we would set up large scale response in, in a specific location that um, identifies people that are sick, traces who they've been in contact with, educates the community about the virus or the disease, makes sure that they're, they're referred to the right place, that they have the right kind of uh, um, sanitation equipment, etc., to be able to wash their hands or, or whatever the case might be to, to prevent transmission. And we would do that alongside the Ministry of Health. We'd make sure that we were able to respond in, in the hospital um, when patients do become sick. And we would potentially be able to handle it and, and bring it under control. In cases where vaccines are available, we would then be able to do a large-scale vaccination campaign um, to, to, uh, to, prevent, uh, to prevent further transmission. All of this is needed in the COVID-19 uh, response, um, but it's happening everywhere at once around the world. So it's not in a specific confined location. And we're facing a lot of supply shortages of protective equipment, of masks. Testing capacity is limited, so we're, we're struggling to be able to test everyone that needs to be tested. Logistical challenges are, are, are occurring in terms of flights. Uh, so we're really, we have to get creative and, and pragmatic to, to, uh, to respond. And this is how it's, it's different to, to some of the other um, epidemics that we would usually respond to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned that Doctors Without Borders is an emergency medical response organization. And so that experience, you would think potentially gives them a bit of a, a leg up or the ability to mobilize or adapt more quickly than some of these other hospitals or regions that haven't been accustomed ever to working under such crisis conditions. So do you think that there are some lessons that these other hospitals in some of these regions that are currently being impacted right now um, that they can learn from physicians or logistical coordinators that have worked in these crisis situations previously? Yeah, I do think there are, there are some, some uh, experiences that can be exchanged and, and lessons that can be learned. I think one thing that MSF has had to learn probably more than, than hospitals, say in the, in the US or, or Europe, is how to do infection control when you're seeing massive patient volumes. Um, so what a high income country system is, is, is not used to necessarily is organizing patient flow from triage to treatment and to discharge while keeping infection infected and, and non-infected areas entirely separate with high volume of, of patients. Um, and this is something that we're very used to doing with with a, with a large quantity of of patients and having to manage that 
infection control at the hospital level. And this is what we've really been helping hospitals with in, in Italy and Belgium, for example, in Spain as well, is how to adapt the flow of patients through the hospital and how to think differently about infection control when you're dealing with this volume and scale of, of, uh, of an epidemic. And then there's a, I think there's, there's a, a more unfortunate lesson that we're able to, to share, and that's how to, making tough decisions, ethical decisions, um, about who to treat and who not to treat when you're facing resource limitations. Um, and this is something that sadly MSF encounters in, in many parts of the world where we work, and there are limitations to, to the resources that are available, and difficult ethical decisions have to, have to be made. And this is something that our health workers are, are unfortunately exposed to, and it's something that, that many health workers in, in other parts of the world have not had to face to the extent that they are today. I think the other thing is, is we are, our role is, as, a, as an organization is always to be advocates for the most vulnerable, um, to ensure that, that the most vulnerable are able to receive treatment based on their needs and not based on their, their ability to pay. Um, and I think many of these vulnerable groups that are often most at risk are overlooked by the health systems that, that are responding to, to, to these needs today. I think maybe one of the, one of the, of the lesson would be, I've touched on it earlier, but on, on the public health kind of response. So I think there's a, there's a, a lot to learn in high income countries about the need to fight an epidemic at the community level, um, before it reaches the hospital. And, and I've, I've mentioned already that we, we can't only rely on, on high-level medical care to save lives. In this pandemic, it's, it's, it helps, of course, and it's incredibly important and, and it's needed. And, and, and Doctors Without Borders is, is also involved in providing high-level care where it's, where it's needed. But it's only part of the picture. And, and to win against an epidemic like this, you really need to tackle it in the household, in the in the streets, in the towns, in the villages, in the, in the neighborhoods and communities. This is something we're very used to doing, um, but it's something that, that advanced health systems that are much more focused on individual patient care in a hospital have often lost the, the ability to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You wrote this great opinion piece about some of the challenges that are faced by the most vulnerable populations in trying to prevent infection with this virus that causes COVID-19. And you've talked a little bit about some of those challenges, but can you talk uh, maybe a bit more about those and also what those populations are, what the most vulnerable populations are? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think what's, 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 uh, important about this pandemic is that we're all affected by it, but the impact is going to be felt by some much more than, than others. Um, and I think the measures that are, that need to be implemented to break the chain of, of transmission in many places where we work, those measures are a privilege. There's not something that can easy, easily be, be put into place. So we're rightly telling people and we're rightly being told to wash our hands regularly, but you know, how do you wash your hands regularly if you have limited access to water, you don't have much soap, um, and you live in a refugee camp in, in Bangladesh, for, for example. Um, so refugees are a key, key vulnerable group that we're, that we're seeing from the islands in Greece to Bangladesh to, to, to many other places where they're living in high density uh, conditions with very limited access to basic essential essentials like, like soap and water. We're also told, rightly so, to keep social distance, to, to keep a space between, between us to, to reduce the chance of transmission. 
But how are you going to do that if you live in a slum in Rio or Johannesburg or Nairobi, where again high density populations, many people living in 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 uh, in one building? I'm talking to you from Beirut today, and recently I heard of of people living in a in a house in a in a refugee camp in, in the outskirts of Beirut, where they have to take shifts in sleeping because there's not enough space to to sleep because of the 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 density of people living in in one in one room. So keeping social distance when you're forced to live in those kinds of conditions is something that's not very feasible. Um, the other measure that we've seen is border closures. Uh, this is something that's being implemented all around the world uh, to limit the, the movement of people. But when you're a Syrian refugee fleeing the conflict in Idlib, it's not something you can do to, to, to stop, crossing, uh, stop crossing a border. We also know that people with, with pre-existing health conditions like diabetes or other, other chronic uh, conditions can be particularly vulnerable to, to severe illness when, 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 they, when they get COVID-19. But we also know that many of these people around the world already don't have access to, to the life-saving treatment that they need for these chronic conditions. So we can tell them to take extra care from, from preventing infection with COVID-19, but they can't access their insulin for, for, uh, for their diabetes. So I think what the, 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 the thing that we're concerned about is that the people that are going to most suffer from this pandemic are those that are already neglected, um, those that are already excluded, that are, that are overlooked. And it's, it's going to be those that have fled from war, those that don't have access to treatment because healthcare is privatized or because there's literally no treatment available where they, where they are. Um, it's those who can't stock up on food uh, and isolate themselves because they're literally living from one day to the next. Um, it's people that have lost social support because of austerity measures that are falling through the cracks in, in, uh, in society and, and that governments are either neglecting or in some cases even targeting. Yeah, and it's, it's people that are, are trapped in conflict under, under bombing and, and, and in siege. Um, and these are the, the, the most vulnerable um, and the communities where controlling the, the epidemic is going to be the most difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the ways that MSF or Doctors Without Borders has been trying to overcome those challenges and to get them the aid that they need? So we're currently focusing on responding to, to the needs of people in the, in the current epi epicenter of the, of the epidemic. And we're paying special attention to these neglected groups that I've, I've mentioned before, like migrants, but, but also what we're seeing a lot is, is the vulnerability of the elderly who are in old age homes, for example. Um, so we're, we're focusing on, on those activities in, in, uh, in parts of, of Europe, but we're also adapt, adapting our existing projects. So we are already working with some of the most vulnerable communities in the world and so we need to ensure that they continue to have access to, to life-saving services. But actually, we also need to, to adapt our activities to, to be able to prevent the, the epidemic getting out of control in many of these, of these locations. So we're having to, to increase our, our uh, hygiene promotion work, um, uh, make sure people have access to the kind of water and sanitation that they need to, to prevent the epidemic. We're, we're trying to put in place some, some isolation capacity in, in different places before we reach the peak of the, of the epidemic so that we're able to quickly isolate um, patients when they've, when they've been identified. 
And we're really trying to also educate people about what is COVID-19 and how to protect themselves. I think it's one thing to tell people what to do, but it's another thing to explain what this is and, and how to become an active participant in, in preventing and protecting um, yourself and, and your family. But we know that in many of these places, the, the, the pandemic is, is inevitable. Um, it's, it's going to peak in, in slum populations and camps, um, in places that are experiencing conflict. So we really have to prepare for, for when that happens. We have to understand more about the, uh, about the disease. Keep in mind that this is a new, a new, um, a new disease for, for all of us. So we're learning as well about, about the, the virus. So we have to, to understand which models of, of care, how do we organize ourselves in the best possible way, considering all of these different, different limitations. And this is really just the, the beginning, unfortunately. Um, what we're responding to today in, in, uh, in parts of Europe and, uh, and what we're preparing for in other parts of the world is, is really the, the, the beginning of, of what's to come. We're, we're really we're gearing up for the for the I guess the public health fight of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, have you seen any impact so far in terms of COVID nineteen on these vulnerable populations, or is that, as you said, sort of yet to come, um, or are the beginning stages are they currently happening? I think there are there are things that are already uh, already happening. The the lockdown in many places that's being implemented is already creating some some difficulties in access to healthcare for for populations that are on chronic medication for for uh, for women that need to have emergency C sections, for example. Um, so for pediatric uh, emergencies, so the the measures that are being put into place create some challenges in their in their own right. Um, and then, of course, in, in many places, the, the, the number of cases is slowly rising and hospitals are, even though they haven't reached the peak of the, of the epidemic, are already facing extreme pressure, being, uh, being overwhelmed, um, even before the, the peak of, of, uh, of this outbreak in many places outside of, of where it's currently at its worst. Um, so absolutely, it's it's definitely already having, a, having an impact on the vulnerable. And I think the other Thing to keep in mind is that many of the these communities the capacity for testing is so limited that our ability to actually know where it is uh, and where it's it's uh, it's growing is is hampered as well by 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 those factors yeah yeah and so um as you mentioned uh doctors at borders has recently expanded their efforts throughout europe and uh but obviously resources are limited. So could you talk about sort of how uh, different groups or activities are prioritized during this expansion and, and it may be you know, with, with a typical epidemic or outbreak? So what we're doing in Europe is that we're, we're really focusing on reaching the most vulnerable communities. So we're working with, with the elderly um, who are the most vulnerable to, to severe uh, infection from, from COVID-19. Um, in Italy and Belgium, also in Spain, we've, we've extended activities to, to work in, in nursing homes for the elderly. Um, these are places where, where people are often living in close contacts. Uh, um, the facilities don't usually have specialized uh, care or equipment for if cases uh, deteriorate. And, and this is a particularly vulnerable and, and excluded uh, part of the, of the population in, in many places. Um, and we're also working with with homeless people and and with migrants. Um, so as I said, these are communities that have often suffered the 
the exclusion from from uh, access to healthcare at the best of times. Um, so in Belgium, in France, uh, also in Switzerland, um, we're working with people that are living in overcrowded conditions that are on the streets, um, sometimes in makeshift camps uh, if they're if they're migrants, or in substandard housing that that exists uh, um, in many places. And yeah, these communities are, are particularly at risk. And so this is how we're prioritizing our role as, as Doctors Without Borders is to, to focus on those that are going to fall through the cracks, who are going to be excluded and who have up until now also been targeted by, by, by the state. In Brussels, just to mention as well, so working with, the, with, the, with particularly vulnerable and my, um, vulnerable communities is one aspect, but also... There's a role for us as, as Doctors Without Borders to play in expanding hospital capacity. Um, many hospitals, as I mentioned, are reaching their, their, their limits. Um, they're overstretched. They have uh, influx of, of, of cases they cannot manage. Um, so we're, we're expanding that, that capacity by working, for example, in the, in the emergency room to, to provide care for moderate cases. Um, to be to allow the the emergency room of certain hospitals to take in the most uh, severe cases, um, and that's something that's really important is to be able to to ensure that the hospitals can can focus on on the most critical and the most severe and to take the strain off of those those hospitals. We've we've set up a, a 50 bed facility, for example, in in Brussels, um, that's probably going to going to increase to around 150 beds. Um, and this is really again to to focus on the on vulnerable communities of of migrants and and the homeless, um, and to to be able to provide the adapted and appropriate care for them, and as, as well to to then reduce the the burden on on hospitals. One other aspect that's that's a key priority for us, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, is the is the infection control aspect, and it's the added value that that we found that we that we have. Where we're able to support hospitals in in finding the best way to 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 manage and prevent and and control um, uh, infection within the hospitals, and that's something that's that's been really well received. But yeah, I mean the the volume of of our responses is growing by the by the day. Um, we are we are really scaling up to to respond to where the needs are the are the greatest. Just recently, over the last days, we've We've um, we've put more than 200 beds uh, to support the hospital in Madrid in uh, in Spain, and yeah, as I said, these these beds are, are to take the burden off the off the hospital so that they can focus on on the more critical patients. So there's a there's a constant growing demand for 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 our emergency capacity, and we're able to to scale up, but but we are we're also facing challenges and, and limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that throughout our episodes on COVID-19 we have emphasized and said over and over again is that we need to collaborate internationally. And um, so as part of a group that works internationally, can you talk about some of the challenges in coordinating this work uh, at an international scale and why it's so crucial to communicate and work across borders? Yeah, I mean, I think considering the the scale of this uh, of this pandemic, what we what we need is is a kind of uh, border blind solidarity. We need uh, um, we need we need a response to the needs where the needs are the greatest. Um, we need international organizations, regional bodies, um, 
governments, of course, everyone to, to mobilize to meet the needs where they are the, the greatest. Unfortunately, we already saw kind of failure in this international solidarity with Italy, where, where EU member states were, were slow to, to, uh, to provide additional support to, to Italy when it was in the peak of its own, of its own epidemic. And it's difficult to, to criticize governments that want to keep supplies for their own population. But I think it's, it's important as well now to, to emphasize the fact that our fates are intertwined, um, that the, the ability to control this, this pandemic relies on our ability to, to control it everywhere. Um, and it's, it's not the time, nor is it appropriate for a kind of petty nationalism that would focus uh, our efforts on, on one specific uh, geographic, you know, bordered area when this pandemic is is global, and what's needed is a form of international solidarity that that transverses those those borders, and that's where it's key to to be able to to coordinate uh, amongst the different actors that have the capacity that have supplies to make sure that these supplies are going to to where they're needed the most if we're really going to have a an impact on on this uh, on this pandemic, and if we if we don't have that kind of international solidarity, we risk entering entering into an endless cycle of of uh, of of this outbreak, and that's um, that's yeah, that's not something we want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, and in general, does it does it seem like countries are receptive to emergency aid by Doctors Without Borders, or is it sort of dependent upon regional differences or what the what the particular crisis might be? We we are facing well both. So we we have uh, governments and and countries definitely are receptive to to uh, to support from Doctors Without Borders. Um, in the countries where we're working already, more than seventy countries, we're in discussions with with all the different relevant authorities to adapt our activities to scale up. But we also face significant challenges from governments as well in terms of of restrictions on movement, in terms of supply restrictions. Um, and these are, are challenges that, that we're constantly having to innovate around and adapt to and negotiate our way through. Um, so we're spending a lot of time at the moment negotiating exemptions to, to some of the, the rules that have been put in place in terms of movements of supplies and people. Because um, we need to, to obviously, to respond to this as an international organization. We, we have 30,000 people working for Doctors Without Borders around the world, and many of them need to move to different project locations, we need to boost our capacity in certain areas, we need to bring some, uh, some of them home in other places. We have supplies that need to be uh, distributed into to some of the hotspots that have to follow the, the epidemic curve in, in, different, uh, in different places. And that requires a level of agility that's, that we're very much used to as, as, as MSF. It's something that we've built up over, over 50 years. But when we're faced with, with many of the restrictions that we see that are, are imposed by, by governments, it's it's limiting our ability to move those supplies and and those people around, um, and that's that becomes extremely complex for us in terms of our ability to respond because we are having to negotiate constantly with with governments for exemptions to certain to certain rules. And what we're finding is that governments are are often better at at implementing the the restrictions and and less so at putting together the exemptions that are needed for for us to be able to do our work. And um, this is uncharted territory for, for not only for us as an organization, but, but also for, for every government that's, that we're dealing with. So 
we're all trying to find the best way to to uh, to to respond and to to be able to remove those supplies and people but it does uh, does come with a significant need for for creativity let's say mm -hmm. yeah so i know that it's sort of it's still early on in this pandemic and there's still a lot that we um that's going to happen uh, but i think a lot of people have already started looking to the future to see how this might change the way we handle you know work the way we handle public health the way we handle international collaborations or public health organizations and so what are some of the changes that you hope to see come out of this i think what COVID-19 is, is exposing is the, the inequalities that already exist in our health systems. Um, it's, it's demonstrating how policy decisions of social exclusion, of reduced access to free healthcare, um, and how the inequality in general um, has an impact on, on our, our health globally. Um, so these policies that have entrenched inequalities, they're actually the enemy of our collective health. Um, and I think this is something that I, I hope to, to, to see out of this, uh, this pandemic, uh, a greater realization. Um, I think what I, what I would also hope is that, is that access to quality healthcare, it, it has to be, it has to stop being <laughs> based on purchasing power. Um, we need to move away from, from healthcare being a commodity. Um, and it needs to be stopped. It needs to stop being treated as such by, by governments. But I also think that, that I, I hope the governments are, are, after this, are able to rethink the, the policy-made vulnerabilities that, that they have created in many cases, whether it's through restrictive migration policies that result in people living in overcrowded conditions or without access to healthcare, whether it's in their approach to poorer communities that are unable to pay again for, for healthcare. Um, I think these policy-made vulnerabilities are, again, it's been shown to 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 affect all of our our health at the end of the day. So I guess in in essence, maybe it's it's uh, it sounds uh, it sounds almost naive, but I, I would hope that that we realize that healthcare must be for for all. Um, it's it's not something that can be continue to be restricted as a commodity for some who can afford it. Um, and I think if we can acknowledge that, it's a, it's a good starting point for for reflecting on what needs to change further. That was Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Whittle. That was just really great to talk with you. And thanks for all the work that you're doing. Another great interview, Erin. Nice work. <laughs> Seriously, though, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us and all of our listeners. We really appreciate it. Mm -hmm, we do. So what have we learned this time? Yeah, Erin, what have we learned? Well, first of all, we've learned that this is the first time in its history that Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, has conducted a major medical emergency response in Europe, which I did not know. 
Usually they work in locations where public health infrastructure is not nearly as well established as it is in most European countries. In Europe, most hospitals and the healthcare system in general are more set up for individual care, not for dealing with the volume of people that they're seeing now, because this hasn't happened in Europe in recent history. But this is what MSF does best. They work in under-resourced areas with limited supplies all the time. It is literally what they do. And they can use this experience and adaptability to help these other places scale up their infection control efforts and start to fight this pandemic from a community level. And they're doing this while also prioritizing the needs of the most vulnerable populations to protect them from harm as much as possible. Isn't it incredible? Yeah, it really is. Number two, another thing that we can learn from past epidemics such as Ebola and the way that we have handled them is the need to enact control measures at the community level. So getting communities, neighborhoods, households involved at these smaller scales. We can't just tackle this pandemic at hospitals by waiting for sick people to show up. We have to be proactive, which is what I think a lot of regions are doing and have been doing. But this isn't something a lot of people have experienced so far, and so it can be difficult to organize and get sort of the momentum up and running. Definitely. I think we're seeing that firsthand. Mm -hmm. Number three, the things that people are told to do to slow the spread of disease or prevent infections are things like washing your hands, practice social or physical distancing, and often just staying at home as much as possible. And we've talked about some of this before, but I think it's really highlighted in this episode. All of these things are a privilege. There are people who lack the clean water or soap to wash their hands and who live in extremely crowded conditions in a refugee camp or who can't shelter in place because they're fleeing war zones or they simply don't have a shelter to stay in, period. To protect these people, every person needs to do what they can to break the chain of transmission. All of us. Yes, exactly. Number four, even though right now, at the time of recording, the epicenters of this pandemic are in Europe and North America, it's not going to stay that way for long. It's only a matter of time before this disease starts heavily impacting regions that may not have the resources and public health infrastructure of wealthier nations. And when that happens, we can't sit back and say, oh, well, it's their problem now. We've dealt with it here. We need a border-blind global solidarity with open exchange of information and resources if there's any hope at reducing the global impact of this pandemic. Preach. <laughs> Speaking of preach, number five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is maybe my favorite. Um, access <laughs> to quality health care needs to be universal for all. I think that's my favorite, too. <laughs> it, it, I mean... I'd, it shouldn't be political, first of all, but oh, right. it absolutely should not be tied to your wealth. When access to quality health care is tied to your socioeconomic status, like it is <clears throat> in this country, it creates a positive feedback loop where the poorer you are, the less you can afford health care, making you sicker, making you need to spend more on health care, making you poorer, etc. We have talked about this cycle of poverty and how it relates to disease on this podcast before, most recently in our episode on schistosomiasis, which, if you haven't heard, it's a great episode. Check it out. But it bears repeating in the context of this current pandemic. The most vulnerable populations, like the ones mentioned by Dr. Whittall, 
are the ones that are going to bear the brunt of this pandemic, as they have in other epidemics and disease outbreaks. And this will further increase the massive economic and wealth disparities, not only among countries, but also within them. Yes, exactly. You know, and we've seen this starting to play out already in the U.S., where new reports are showing that the number of COVID cases and deaths broken down by race pretty clearly shows that Black people are being disproportionately affected by and disproportionately dying from COVID-19. And this is unfortunately not surprising if you consider the long history of systemic racism and oppression in the U.S. that has led to the striking inequality in access to quality health care. And, you know, these data are new, but I think that in the weeks and the months and the years to come, we'll get a much clearer picture that not everyone will feel the impact of this pandemic equally. Womp, 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 womp. I mean, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, this is not uplifting information, but I think it's really important to talk about these. There are aspects of this pandemic that we cannot ignore, and this is one big one. And I think it's kind of like a call to action and a call to arms, like things need to change going forward. And I would hope that something as horrific as this can at a bare minimum lead to some actual change. I I hope so. I think that's sort of what a lot of the silver lining thinking I've been doing is like, Mm -hmm. how is this going to change access, working practices, Mm -hmm. economics, everything. How is this going to change the way we we handle public health? Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully it will lead to some very positive change. And even the discussion now that we're seeing in social media and in the news is is in a way encouraging, I think. Can be encouraging, I should say. Not always. Okay. Well, thank you again, Dr. Wittell, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, And hopefully, listeners, you guys learned as much as we did from this episode. Yeah. Okay, sources. So we've got just a couple here. Uh, We're going to link to that article that I mentioned that uh, by Dr. Whittle, and uh, you guys should definitely read it. It's it's an excellent article. And then the other thing that we're going to post is a sort of an explanation of how scientists calculate R naught, and it's written by an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Michigan. Awesome. Thank you again to all the listeners who have sent in firsthand accounts so far. Um, And if you're interested in doing that, please go to our website, click on COVID-19 firsthand. And thank you again to Zuen Spiegelman for helping us get that Google form set up. Thank you, Zuen. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. And thank you to you, dear listeners, for being you. Yes, thank you. We appreciate you. We love you. Seriously, so much. Stay safe. Keep sending us your questions, too. Yes, please do. Well, until next time, wash your hands. You filthy animals.